Imperial probe droid. The Incomparable Podcast, number 67, November 2011. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. Tonight we've got a very special episode. It's part one of approximately 8,000 about... The Empire Strikes Back, the second of the classic Star Wars films. And I've got to tell you, we had um, dozens, if not hundreds of people clamoring to be on this podcast. And after a series of strict tests where people had to fill out a, a sheet of Scantron forms with number two pencils and we, we graded their essays and various other things happened. We were left with three panelists joining me to discuss the second Star Wars movie. Of course, the two biggest Star Wars nerds I know are here, um, and they are Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. May the force be with you. Thank you. And always with you. And John Syracusa. Hi, John. I'm ready, Jason. I'm, I... I can feel it. I know you're ready. He was, he was born it ready. It frightens me a little bit. Also joining me, I don't know, would you consider yourself a Star Wars nerd too, Serenity Caldwell? Maybe just a little bit, seeing as how Empire is on my number one of all time movies list. So, you know. Well, that's what you said on your on your entrance exam, and that's why we, we uh, admitted you to this episode. After so. tough competition. Yeah. If she could be turned, she would be a great asset. Mm. Powerful ally. See, because all Greg Noss wanted to do was talk about how Star Wars, the original, was better. And so he was rejected. Yeah, I can't have that. No. No, that's not constructive. We're talking constructive. It's also, it's also wrong, so, you know. Yes. Um, so so <laughs> Empire Strikes Back, 1980, second movie. The first movie made under lots of pressure. Who knew whether it was going to be a success or a flop? Obviously, it was a wild success. And so... We've got an upgraded budget and the knowledge that this is a cultural phenomenon now that goes into the making of this. And another fascinating thing about this movie is that George Lucas, the writer and director of the first movie, is not credited with either of those tasks here. There, there is Irvin Kirshner as the director, and although George Lu Lucas has a story credit because he did fashion the story of Star Wars, Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan are credited as the screenwriters. So step back from George Lucas... Um, which I think was probably a, a good thing. So before that may be why it's the best of the Star Wars movies. Could be. Could be. In hindsight, could very well be. Um so my goal I think is to um I think I think we'll just walk through the movie um chronologically at first because that worked pretty well with Star Wars and some of the other movies that we've done. Um but before I start, is there anything in particular? Do you have any access to grind? Any things you'd like to bring up now before we dive into the beginning of uh, the Empire Strikes Back? Anyone? I have some. I have some opening comments. Opening remarks. Yes. <laughs> the chair recognizes the senator from I, Alderaan. I, I have a. Re I have a rebuttal. Because <laughs> I, I I did organize my notes according to like I figured we'd walk through the movie chronologically, but I have some stuff that's at the beginning that's not about a specific part of the movie, but just kind of like setting the stage here, right? Yeah. So the first thing is a quote from that Empire Strikes Back, the making of Empire Strikes Back book that we all mentioned that we had and were in various states of flipping through and reading. Uh, and it was a quote from, I think it was from that book. I also have the New Hope one. I don't remember where it was from, but it was 
a secondhand quote. I wish it was firsthand because it would be deliciously ironic, just like that Lucas <laughs> quote where he talks about the sins of changing past works. You've seen that one being bounced yep. around the internet. So this is a slightly different one. It's secondhand because it's somebody, I forget who it was, who worked for Lucas and who's relaying to someone interviewing him, I guess, in the, in the early 80s, maybe right after A New Hope, saying what George always says about movies. He says, well, George... When I talk about movies, George always says, well, you know how in real estate it's location, location, location? Well, George always tells me in movies it's script, script, script. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a hilarious quote coming from the person responsible for some of the worst scripts ever created by man. Uh, But my opening statement on Empire is going to be that if I had to pick the number one reason that this movie is better than all the other Star Wars movies, and there are many reasons, many very important reasons, but if I had to pick one, it would be the script. Uh, And I think that we will see as we talk about this movie that that's one thread that runs through the entire thing. And the other opening comment I have is the fact that this is a middle chapter movie we, in in the trilogy of Star Wars. We're forgetting about those other movies. That the first movie, you know, sets the stage and the second movie ends it. And the middle chapter has advantages and disadvantages. Now, the disadvantages are obvious that it doesn't get to show us like new stuff like, hey, there's such a thing as lightsabers and the Force and X-Wings because the first movie got to do that, right? And it also doesn't get to resolve the conflict, as we'll see as we go through the movie, because then why would there ever be another movie? So that kind of hurts you as a movie. But the advantages are that we already know the characters and we already understand the universe. And I bet if Greg was here, he would be having a whole debate about why this makes this movie worse and so on and so forth. But I think this sets the stage for what we're about to go into and everything else in this movie that we will talk about kind of hinges on those things. That this is a middle chapter movie and that the script is so much better than the other movies. And yeah, maybe it's because Lucas didn't write it and so on and so forth. But uh, those are my opening comments on, on Empire. To, to add two things. One thing that I found fascinating um, is maybe I alluded to this on the, the first Star Wars podcast that I'm a big fan of the the radio drama versions of the at least Star Wars and Empire, which both came out. Uh, fairly close to. I think the Star Wars radio drama came out in 1980 and the Empire one came out in like 81 or something. Um, And I think what was interesting was I remember reading a little bit uh, when I first got like the tapes for that and they had a little intro and they talked about the fact that despite Empire's what, two and and a quarter hour movie roughly, um, there's about 40 minutes of dialogue in that, which always struck me, you know, as as such a fascinating fact. Like this is... This is a movie that, as John says, you know, the script is really important and does a really good job, but it's also very economical. Um, there's not and – that, and that struck me watching it again is just how pared down and to the point a lot of it is. And when I was sort of joking before we started out here about how I was reading the, uh, the earlier drafts that they quote in the Making a Star Wars book and saying they were, they were bad, I think a lot of it is because um, – they're they're really heavy and and like you know there's a lot of explication there's a lot of um almost everything you know was trimmed down you can see the basic skeleton of it but there's all this superfluous stuff and you realize well that's turns out that's not actually necessary (laughs) and in many ways um it's a movie that does a whole lot more with a whole lot less have you been reading my notes yes (laughs) Scarily, scarily sick. I tell you, I don't. I told you, I don't. I don't take notes. (laughs) All right, I'm just talking off the top of my head. All right, yeah. So, well, that that point will come up as we get to individual scenes. I believe definitely. I think it's interesting, Dan, that you bring up the radio dramas too, because I hadn't listened to them until last year. And the Star Wars radio drama, the New Hope radio drama, has quite a few added scenes. But the Empire 
drama really doesn't have all that much, you know, it, it's it's longer certainly than the film, but in terms of extra extra scenes and extra dialogue, there really isn't that much. It There's like one used pretty closely. Yeah. There's a couple really nice scenes. They do a scene where uh in the tent. where yeah, where Han and Luke are in the tent after he's found him on Hoth, which is kind of a great scene because it's the it's Han and Luke bickering back. You know, they sort of start out being like, "Oh, thanks for coming out and getting me," but as the you know the night goes on and wears into day, and they're not sure if they're going to make it, they start bickering, um, and it's really great banter. They do the Brian Daly who wrote the uh, the scripts for uh, all three of those, and as well as the uh, some of the Han Solo novels, um, did a really fantastic job of capturing the tone perfectly. It shows their friendship very well. The thing about Empire that I think makes it for me, and especially because it's a middle chapter, and you think about middle chapter movies or just middle chapters in general, I mean, there's a lot of expectation there, and it's really hard to tell that kind of a story. The thing that makes Empire so great, at least in my book, is that it's very cleanly in a certain way set up as three distinct stories throughout the course of the film, and they're almost like they're little individual short stories built within this greater universe that happened to tie together. So it's almost like, for a certain extent, you could watch just the Dagobah section. You could watch just the Cloud City section. And it almost, it feels very closely to the Flash Gordon serials that, you know, Star Wars is used back to from the beginning. Yeah, they are vignettes. And I, but they are done so nicely, whereas New Hope is very much an overarching story. And they don't have quite those segments quite as well built. I think the way Empire builds those, in addition to the dialogue, which I agree with both John and Dan, and also the the fact with the script is it's not even so much the dialogue, it's what's not said and the way the story is built without over-explicating. It's just less is more. Let's see how we can communicate this without speaking for two pages about how, you know, how we must find the rebels or anything. You know, it just happens. Well, I've seen this movie uh, countless times and in watching it again in preparation for this podcast and taking notes, I actually watched it with my kids. Um, you know, every time you watch a movie, you notice, ideally you notice something new and maybe it was just the act of knowing that we were going to talk about it or it was the act of taking notes. But um, what I really noticed this time, and again, we can talk about this as we go through, I noticed the dialogue and it's not just because we've seen some George Lucas written movies where the dialogue is terrible. I just noticed the the velocity of the dialogue, particularly between Han and Leia, that um, it's it's kind of breathtaking in the speed of some of their encounters. And um, I think actually kind of bold that they, they talk so fast that it's kind of hard to understand everything that they're saying because it happens it sparkles. so mm-hmm. fast. Yeah. And it, it's Aaron almost – in space. Yeah, it's almost like yeah. screwball 40s kind of well, – Kind of well, feeling. It reminds me and, very much. And, 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 well, and, and bracket. bracket Bracket wrote noir in the forty. I mean, she wrote the. I think uncredited. She worked on the screenplay for The Big Sleep. Um, so you know, she she was a veteran of that. I don't know how much of that carries over from the stuff that she does because, I'm, as I'm sure John will will note, that she you know a lot of her early draft stuff was sort of overwritten yeah, later. But, but I, I do buy the fact that despite that she was mostly overwritten, that her spirit sort of like the. I, I get the impression I'm not a movie scriptwriter, but I get the impression that if you're called in to basically overwrite or rewrite a script by a famous screenwriter that you admire who's known for a particular genre, you're going to, in the back of your mind, have respect for where they're coming from. You know what I mean? And you're not going to rewrite it to be something totally different or just in your own style, right? So even though uh, it, it, I doubt many words, ideas, or even phrases from uh, Brackett's script are, are still in there, I think the spirit is still in the script. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, it it does sparkle. 
So I guess we should start now that the opening remarks portion of the program are complete with um, with the uh, the planet Hoth, which to start out, I think um, I can take a shot here, which is just that we we have reached the latest in a in a uh, uh, an ongoing series of uh, single climate planets, Plant planets with all one ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. But um, but I love the contrast here where we where we start so much of Star Wars beginning is about Tatooine uh the you know desert planet with two suns and the waste desert wastelands and here we have the the polar opposite it is freezing and icy and miserable in a completely different way which is um it just always struck me as being such a such a strange way to start it because it really does send the message like this is not a place you saw in that movie right because so many people are going into this movie with the expectations of having seen that first movie a million times, like going back to the theater and seeing it again and again and again. And the first thing you see in this movie, you know, when you get to Hoth is, I mean, you, you see the little probe come down and all that, but it's just, it's like nothing that was in the previous movie. And it really does a, a great job, I think of setting your, or resetting your expectations saying, no, you think, you know, this story, but you don't. But one of the things that's fascinating is that the the opening shot is in some ways very much an homage to the first movie, which is it also opens with a star destroyer, yes, right. right? We get that same sort of you know pan, and, and then we're very quickly taken away to Hoth, um, which I agree, you know, there is a stark contrast. And I think there was something about this when I was a kid. I think maybe it was just that that you know I, I think I said in the Star Wars podcast again that you know when I was a kid, like my cousins would come visit and we we'd rent a Star Wars movie, and I feel for whatever reason that's that Empire was the one that we saw the least. And in some ways, that made it the most special. And there was something about that, like that, that unusualness to it, that that has always made it one of my favorites. Um, even though I've seen it, you know, umpteen million times now, uh, something about that holds with me. And I think it is that idea of like, you know, it's so different. You know, in the, both the, the in Return of the Jedi and Star Wars, we all spend a lot of time on Tatooine, right, in this desert and hot climates, and then we've got you know, Endor and what have you. And it, <laughs> it, but this is cold. It's very different. Everybody's wearing different clothes, right? Because they're all bundled up. There's a whole different environment. They're really being put upon by this by this world. Um, it's a very hostile world, really, right? In a, in a different way from Tatooine. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of these these Star Wars movies for at least people closer to Jason and my age and I guess Dan too, but like we saw these movies when we were a particular age. And if we had seen them when we were a bit older and more jaded and cynical, having the sequel open on an ice planet after a movie where you opened on a desert planet would be like this. I mean, the same way Jason introduced it. Oh, you know, well, single climate plants or in video game parlance like this, the ice world, the, the lava world, you know, the forest yeah. world or the forest level. It's a, it's a cliche and it's not that interesting, but if you see this movie when you're, you know, 10 years old or, or or 11 years old after coming off of star wars that that move that pretty mundane and now extremely you know played out move of like well we did the desert planet let's do the ice planet comes out of nowhere to hit you and like you you're not expecting it Absolutely. you're not jaded enough you're not jaded enough to see it as a cliche you don't you and the fact that they opened on the starter story you're like all right star wars if you had asked a kid in an eight-year-old version of me like how do you think the next star wars is going to open well i bet they'll be in space and there'll be x-wing and luke's going to be flying one around so they open in space you're like yeah it's going to be this great movie and you're like ice planet and it just from that point on you you are knocked off balance yes. as a small kid now maybe as an adult you it, it doesn't work but like i can't see this movie not as seeing it as a kid and to me it's one of the more brilliant sequel openings. It's not 
it's not hammering you over the head because I can imagine like an Iron Man three opens and you think Iron Man is cool and everything, but he's really a midget and that came out of nowhere, you know. <laughs> like, wait, I, it's not. It, it would Spoilers. be overplay, but like, yeah. So it just it just works, and I I have a very difficult time being objective about this movie because I know how well it worked on me as a kid, and to this day, like I try to look critically and I said, did they just did, did they wimp out and doing the ice planet or whatever? And I I just have to I said no, they. It it works. It's not too heavy handed. It's it's a cliche a bit now, but in in context, it worked and it still does. It puts the rebellion. I think we in our Star Wars podcast we talked about. In fact, the title of the second episode is Death Star University about how they they get the, the you know they 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 take the plans back and suddenly they're on this foresty moon and there are all these buildings with pillars and it's like there's a college campus and they're learning about the Death Star. And it's it always has struck me as being weird. And and Empire, I think, resets the the Rebel Alliance in a much better way, which is to say they're on the run. I mean the opening the opening crawl does this too. They're on the run, they've right. split up into different groups. This group, including our friends from the last movie, is on this miserable ice ball in these kind of dugout, you know, this dugout structure that that is claustrophobic. And they're under assault, and the the Empire is really mad now because they blew up the Death Star, and it's looking for them. And I think, I think there's that too that it's really effective in saying, you know, these are rebels. They are up against a huge foe. They are not like laying back at Death Star University having a good time. They're on the run, and in fact, as the movie progresses, this base that we see, they're basically like, we, we got to go. Because they well, found they, us, right? And, and, and they've just finished setting up, yeah, more or less. You but they got to go. And, and so, so I like that, what it says about the rebellion, just saying that it is it is not a comfortable life that these guys are. They are in a civil war. Yeah, they're they're on their back foot. And I think this is, you know, this whole, we talk about being this in the middle. It's the second act, right? And the job of the writer in the second act is, you know, and I've just heard someone say this, and it slipped my mind too, but you put the, the characters in the worst position they could possibly be in, right? And so we, from the get-go, that's how we start. We start with the rebellion in trouble on the run, you know. And the thing that, that you know, to take that a step further, um, we've got our hero, right, Luke Skywalker. Oh yeah, he blew up the Death Star. He's learned to be a Jedi. He's probably pretty badass by now. What's the first thing that happens to him? He gets crap kicked out of him by a Wampa, right? <laughs> like you know, it's only downhill from there. <laughs> and so I think that it definitely resets all of our expectations when you have these certain like. Well, hey, we're going to be riding high after blowing up the Death Star and everything, right? No, turns out it, things got a lot worse. And so I, I think that definitely sets the tone for the entire movie um, and, and the fact that this is all just prelude to the, that inevitable climax. And they're, they're riding on animals, which is like low-tech. Yeah. He was riding an X-Wing, now he's riding an ugly animal. None of their stuff works. They, the Millennium Falcon doesn't work. They can't get the speeders to work. Like, they're not doing well. So my first note here is... Actually, literally, the first thing I wrote down is Han's such a girl. All he wants is a hint from Leia that she likes him. But but it, it is charming. It is so incredibly charming. When we meet Han Solo, he he's bantering with Leia, but it's so clear, especially as an adult looking at it. But it's so clear that that you know he 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 loves her and he's trying to get her to do anything to crack her tough exterior and and admit anything really it's like give me a reason to stay in a way that i never as a kid never really read it this way but you know give me a reason to stay your worshipfulness and she won't do it well your highness guess this is it that's right 
Don't get all mushy on me. So long, princess. Yes, your Highnesses. I thought you had decided to stay. Well, the bounty hunter we ran into when Lord Mendel changed my mind. Han, we need you. We need? Yes. Well, what about you need? I need. I don't know what you're talking about. Probably don't. And what precisely am I supposed to know? Come on. You want me to stay because of the way you feel about me? Yes. You're a great help to us. You're a natural leader. No. That's not it. Come on. Uh-huh. Come on. You're imagining things. Am I? Then why are you following me? Afraid I was going to leave without giving you a goodbye kiss? I just assumed it's a Wookiee. I can arrange that. You can use a good kiss! Um, it, it, what's also interesting, um, uh, apropos of what we were just saying about how it's you know, we end the first movie in such a wonderful condition and we start in such a miserable one is that, you know, Han's out the door at the beginning of this movie. He's he's saying goodbye. He's getting out. The bounty hunters are after him. He's taken off. And that's also really interesting to think about that, that that where we start, Han is um, back to sort of where he was before he decided to go save Luke, which is I got to get out of out of this place. You know, you rebels are great and all, but I'm out of here. And then the only thing that'll make him stay is either his friendship with Luke, which is what ends up doing it, or if the princess will give him any sign and she won't, which I think is great. I have to give a minor a minor nitpick, and this is one of the things that, that you know, it's bugged me somewhat in, in the past viewings, and this one, it just, I, I wish I didn't feel so bad about it, but that scene that he has with uh, with General Riken when he first comes back, there's there's something so weird about the pacing of that. He's like, yeah, please tell your things. By the way, I gotta go. Like the, the we talked about, you know, the how fast the yeah. dialogue is, and it comes out of nowhere. That is a really weird transition. Harrison Ford sometimes phones in a scene. Yeah, that was a little strange in, in all of his movies, and every once in a while. To be fair, my favorite one of my favorite lines from this movie, which is a terrible line, is a death mark's not an easy thing to live with. Uh. It's like, well, duh. <laughs> Every time I hear that now, I'm like, oh, we could have, we could have, but a death mark, easy to live with. No, because it's a death mark. They're going to kill you. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. That just, well, it that makes a, it sound very well, casual. Trying to, right, right. Trying to justify, though. It's like, well, that's okay, Solo. You're a, you know, you're not a miserable traitor yeah. and coward. You're, you got a death mark. All right. I, I, I feel you. I, I get where you're coming from there. You know, he's trying. And, well, and there's, there's, a lot, I mean, you know, all, all said that that's fine. It's, it's a minor. But he's thing. out it's the just... door. I mean, what, what a thing! Right. No, no, and that's great. The first time we see our friends after three years, right? In the way this movie was initially released, and it is, I think, in story well, and chronology. It's three years in storyline yeah. too. Yes, which I love that they hint at that too. There's that one. He's got a throwaway line, you know, with Leia that the bounty hunter and Ord Mantell changed my changed my mind. You know, and I and I I love that right because it hints at all these oh there are there are all these adventures yeah, in we, between that we don't know about but he's out but the fact that he's out the door that he's like I'm taking off it's just so right. shocking it's like no but our friends were no! we just we just started the movie oh, <laughs> you can't go it's a good economy of plot points too because it's so think in this one move where he says he has to leave they get to start establishing the the Han Leia relationship, right? Yep. They get to briefly establish that he was a valued member of the rebellion after just kind of deciding to turn back at the end of A New Hope. And they get to reestablish that he's being chased by bounty hunters, which will become significant later in the movie. And all right. that in, I mean, it was like, you know, two seconds worth of yeah. on-screen footage. This is, you that's set up why, the entire movie. Yes. <laughs> they don't have to have a separate plot point. They don't have to have a separate scene where he's being chased by a bounty hunter. They don't have to have a separate scene where he's talking with the general about why he should stay. They don't have to have a separate scene talking with Princess Leia about, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
It's it's economical, as we say. But again, I, I just love. I f- I think it's just absolutely adorable that that um, and this is how I I read it upon watching it now, which is just he he so wants to get a reason to stay, and and Leia just for whatever reason she doesn't want to give it to him. Well, think back to his line in A New Hope. It's like I said, this is like defining a characteristic when we talked about this scene in A New Hope. Han is like, you know, I got your ship for you and, you know, old man and blah, blah, blah. As soon as they leave the table, turns to you and says, these guys must really be desperate. <laughs> yeah. He's like the yeah. sensitive, he's the sensitive, you know, nice guy. And he showed, what you're seeing here is the, this guy's must really be desperate guy going, yeah. this girl, so I'm going to go. You said about that? Oh, Han. Right. Han has his walls just as much as Leia does. They're just formed in different ways. And I feel like we approach the movie so much from Leia and Luke's perspective and the third party audience perspective that you don't really get to see what he's thinking. And you only you only get it actually when you see that the wall, like you don't notice that the walls come back down until it snaps back up where it's like, well, don't get all mushy on me, princess. Right. You know, yeah, just, that, that was your, that was your opening. And now I'm crying. that's your cue. That's like, oh, wait, no, he was being sincere there. Holy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, I mean, I, I love that, again, you know, like like Jason's saying, he's, he sort of stalks off, you know, kind of like hoping that she'll come after him, right? You know, goes off, goes off to find Chewie. All right, we're getting out of here, you yeah. know. And she and does. I, can I say, I really love Carrie Fisher. When, when she's being shrill and yelling at him, for some reason, I just, like, she, I don't know if she's a great actress. I haven't really seen her in many, I've seen her in When Harry Met Sally right. in Star Wars, probably, yeah, right? that's about but, it. When she's chasing after him down the hallway and saying, "Yes, you're a great pilot," what like? Oh, that's such a great scene. She sells these lines. It, it's great dialogue, and she sells it. You're, you'd be an asset to the rebellion. You're <laughs> later yeah. on. My favorite, my favorite line from her in this entire movie is, "I am not a committee." <laughs> yes. Just the way that she delivers that is such a. It's such a. It seems so plausible. She does so well in this movie, and it could just be, it, it could just be that she's just Carrie Fisher. And the fact that maybe she's not a good actress at all, she's just being like Carrie Fisher. But if this is the only thing you've seen, Carrie, she's just so natural. It doesn't come off as someone acting. It doesn't come off as, as being shrill or annoying. It comes off as annoyed. Like, you can read the subtext of everything she's saying, like the fact that she really does want him to say, but she's also being loud. And I, I just love it. She's flustered. There's an advantage to the fact that this is the sequel to a movie everybody knew. And as a result, it's a, it, you know, it is a movie written for them. I mean that that that's a huge advantage that yeah. it is written for the actors. These exactly. characters have been thought of and kind of turned over in everybody's head for years. And uh, right. th- what a what a great advantage that, it, that is to say I see what she did in Star Wars and then we can play to her strengths. Although in Star Wars she was so all over the map where she had the fake, fake accent, accent yeah. so the system slipping through your fingers, yeah. and, then, and then like they decided the Leia they like from A New Hope is the walking in the hallway. Will someone get this walking carpet? Exactly, right before they dive into the trash compactor. That, yes. That's the Leia that's going to come into Empire is to get this walking. That was carpet. the right decision. Absolutely. Yes. The other ones were boring. Incredible. <laughs> yes. Damsel in distress. The stupid diplomat lady. The, one <laughs> the senator. The yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. She's much better as the as this rebel leader. You know, whatever. It's it, and it's weird, right? Because she doesn't exactly have this this. Uh, you, you're never quite sure of the hierarchy of the of of Hoff base, right? Like you got this general who's in charge, but she's kind of like revving up the troops, or she's sitting in like one of those like communications chairs, or she's running it. Like it's in t- it's unclear in some ways, but at the some at the same time, you don't really care. <laughs> Yeah, like it, that was one of the things that occurred to me as I was thinking about this time. Like, like what is her job? I always figured that she. I always figured Leia was like the because she's she's kind of rebel royalty. I always figured that like she's really important in the overall rebellion, but that right. militarily there is a you know military leader of the installation 
So she's, you know, she's not the military right. leader, but she's part of the leadership group. But she's sort of like, not quite the figurehead either, but she's sort of like the head of the committee she's, or something. She's not a committee. She's, she's part committee, of the committee. Though. She's not she's a part committee. of the committee. <laughs> well, you see later that she feels responsibility for these people, despite her figurehead status and not a really military person. She's the one staying there at the end to make sure everybody gets out. She's the last right. one to leave. And you, don't, you a figurehead wouldn't do that, do that. You know, she's not being protected like the president would be whisked out of there. We have to get you on the first shell. No, she's on the last. She, she doesn't even get on the last shell. Because she personally feels responsibility for these people. She's going to go down with the ship, essentially. She she's she's sticking around till the end. You have to remember what happened to her in the first movie, though, too. I mean, she witnessed her entire planet get blown up and it was basically her fault. So I feel like even though you may not have a military prowess and you may be, you know, 19 and a little a little, you know, a little flippant and, and things like that. But that takes a certain weight onto your shoulders and you do whatever you can. And of course, you're going to fight for the people that are still here because you've lost so many people. And at that point, you know, it's. Grab, grab what you can and move forward. So Luke's out there riding around, and one of the things we see with Luke is that he he spots the the probe droid crashing and decides to go check it out. And he's he's whacked by a wampa and and uh, dragged back to the wampa's cave. When he's hanging upside down, and that lightsaber is away from him, that's the first point where we are confronted with. All right, in the last movie, what did Luke do with the Force? He heard the voice. He didn't use the computer. He made the shot, but he had said he had made that shot without the Force before. So, what's the whole deal with this Force? We we heard talk about it. maybe you can you can fight stuff with your eyes closed and fight that little probe droid, and it makes you disappear when you get sliced. But what the hell is this whole Force thing about? So he's hanging upside down. He's in peril. The monster's coming. His lightsaber is sitting twenty feet away from him, sitting in baking soda. Impossible situation, right? There's no way out. How does he? How does he get the lightsaber? And what is he? What is our hero? He closes his eyes, and you're like. He's and the music plays. You're like, he's going to use that force thing, <laughs> and, uh, and the thing starts to move, yep. and you're like, moving things with your mind. Now, depending on how old you are, if you've never read anything about telekinesis or any other type of thing like that or whatever, like you knew he had a lightsaber. You're like, he got that in the first movie. He should use that. Lightsabers are awesome, but it's on the ground. How is he going to get it? And it goes into his hand, and that's another little window opening in your little ten year old mind yeah. going. He made the lightsaber go into his hand by thinking about it and then cut the guy in like, you're just like, oh my God. Jedis are awesome. From a technical perspective, I love that shot. That is one of my favorite shots in this movie I was thinking about as I was watching again, where the lightsaber starts to like jiggle slightly, right? And then we do this sort of like, sort of up zoom into the lightsaber. It's subtle, but it looks, it just looks so good. It gives me chills every time I see that. And then you see it rattle a little more and rattle a little more. Well, that's that, that's that moment where the filmmakers anticipate that you're going, Oh, the force. Uh, it works great too. And it, it, it nails it. It nails it. Well, it captures the, you know, they could have, they could have replaced that moment with CGI if they wanted to, but that is something that works so well as a practical shot where it's the, the uncertain jiggle where you you know the puppeteers that are moving everything in the background it's just it captures it of captures course. the moment well that yeah and the, and the camera movement too is what really what gets me is there's a, there's a great little like zoom dolly in and so what and what happens after that to, to establish where luke is sort of in the hierarchy of figuring this whole stuff out what does he do he chops the arm off the thing as an echo of the first movie uh, and then scrambles the heck out of there into the snow because he doesn't know what the heck he's doing like why wouldn't he have just stayed in the cave he's panicking he's not he's not a great well and he doesn't he hasn't killed it either right he, he no right right but like but, but <laughs> bottom line is like uh. what he's pulled off here is is a narrow escape yes. that he happened to use some things or he's not suddenly oh, i can kill everybody because i'm a giant no he's terrified he's hanging upside down he's injured he wants to get out of there he, he does grabs the thing and you know and just gets out so you're you're establishing that luke is not 
the all-conquering hero, but there's something there going on with him. Is, is anybody else amazed, as I constantly am in this movie, that he doesn't get himself down by cutting his legs off? Because every time that I see that, I'm easy. like... would be easy. Well, I try to figure out what happens. Is he melting the ice with the lightsaber? He's he cutting, cutting it in a circle, I believe, where it's just kind of like a... a... He's making a big blue flash of light, and then he Okay, yeah, because it looks like he just swipes it, and I'm like, oh my god, you're going to cut your legs off. Lose some toes Very, that very way. Christmas story. Very Christmas story. Oh, and, and so now he's out in the snow, and I have, I have a, a quick point of when he's out in the and snow. And this is when he has his vision of, of, uh, of Ben, right? So we talked about this before, and this is my first note on this. Uh, the purpose of the scene is to reestablish that... that uh, that Ben Kenobi, who we knew from the first movie, is still around, and that he can still communicate with Luke, and now he gets to do it with a little shaky dream vision hologram glowing. thing. And now, yes. the fact that it happens when he's delirious in the snow and like out of his mind yeah. about the freeze to death, you could think that like is he hallucinating or whatever. He actually sees Ben Kenobi. It, this is to establish that he's going to have to go see Yoda. He's going to train him. Blah, blah blah. This scene, Obi Wan Kenobi speaks nineteen words. Ooh. will go to the Dagobah system. Dagobah system? There you will learn from Yoda, the Jedi Master who instructed me. Ben! Ben! 19 words. If this scene was in a modern movie, there would be this big rambly scene with the ghost of Ben and the dream sequence and talking to Luke and having conversation. Nineteen words. I, I was thinking it would be like uh, it would be like when Mr. Spock meets Captain Kirk in yeah. the Star Trek movie, where there'd be a yeah. flashback and he said, "Well, there was a black hole, and then they chased me through, and I went to a thing, and then <laughs> like, there was this other thing, and now you got to go to Dagobah." Okay. Nineteen words. He says he introduces Yoda. Says you got to go to this place. You're going to learn from Yoda. He instructed me. I'm out. And then, and then Han, and then Han comes riding through his, his the image of where he used to be. Be out. Did, does anyone ever wonder why he picked that moment? He could have he could have told him at any time, right? And it's just like, ah, now's a good time. Well, that's why it makes you think it's like a hallucination because he's delirious, and you see Han come riding through the thing. You're like, did he imagine that? Is he like imagining? And that will become important later when he lands on Dagobah. And it's like, what the hell am I doing here? Was this, you know, was that a dream? Was it because I was half half dead. Yeah. The thing that I found about it is I just assume that, you know, we know that stuff's been going on from the end of New Hope onward is that you just assume that Luke just hasn't had all of that much time to really think about using the force or using training or doing anything like that. We don't really get the impression that he's become all this more powerful except for the fact that he's able to pull the lightsaber out with his mind. And the way I sort of look at it is he's partially delirious but i think he's partially opened up his mind to a certain yeah, yeah. extent where where it's formally been closed because he's been worried about you know getting the rebellion in place and stuff like that and but that, he finally has an idea as a result the panic of the wampa scene about to be eaten by a wampa that's when you're going to learn how you'll figure out how to get it out of the snow you know or, or he's really close to death and, and obi-wan's already dead so he's he's, he's seeing the other side right. Either way, his mind is opening up to a point where Ben can reach him, where formerly, you know, that may have not been possible. I mean, really, if you're, is Ben just going to magically appear inside the Hoth base and be like, hey, Luke, long time no see. By the way, how about that Digabah system? Leave, leave him a message. He's got and, a comlink. And you could have done that if you, want, if you were a worse script writer and have, like, the, the thing show up and have them walk down a hallway, say, in a Senate building and say, you know, you should go to the Dagobah system. You know, it's pretty cool. And by the way, he's small and green and has pointy ears. So if you see some dude there, that's actually Check him. him uh, so, so I think you should go there. Yeah, you that want a be, sandwich? I'm having a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> that would be bad writing. I, I, I do appreciate the economy of it, and it's good to reestablish that he's going to be getting messages from Ben. I, 
I'm not a big fan of the I've had a vision who tells me where to go next in the plot kind of thing. But it's also a question of like, how do you move that forward? You've got to have some sort of element that says, you know, I'm going to throw this into gear so he meets Yoda. So, I mean, it is the most economical way to do it, even though part of me looks at that and is like, oh, sure. We'll just have a guy appear and say, go over there. But they do it in a way that you could doubt him, though. You doubt, like, did he see that? Or is he just imagining his old friend yes. Ben because he's about I to agree. die? Especially since, the, especially since Han comes riding in through where the, hall, where the hallucination used to be. You know? yeah, I like that shot, too. Oh, that's great. So, so let's talk about Han a little bit here, because, uh, and, and this involves a little bit of backtracking. You know, the, the, the bureaucrats in the rebellion, the guys at the, at the gate and all that, are sort of like, well, <laughs> first off, there's the guy who's like, well, I don't think he came in the other gate. It's like, why don't you check on that? Which I, which I really like, where Han is really taking control of the situation. But, but they're like, you know, well, he's out there and he's going to die. And we get the droids. We get the first odd quotation of the, of the movie where they quote the odds of him surviving and all of that. And it is Han's loyalty that saves Luke here. Han goes out and says, I'll see you in hell and goes out. Tauntaun will freeze before you hit the first marker. I, I love that little I, I love that little interchange he has with the droids too, right? Because there is so much in that of this character that we've come to know and love where, you know, 3PO is like, you know, might I inquire what's going on? <laughs> and Han's like, why not? <laughs> might I have a word with you, please? What do you want? Well, it's Princess Leia, sir. She's been trying to get you on the community. I turned it off. I don't want to talk to her. Oh, well, Princess Leia is wondering about Master Luke. He hasn't come back yet. She doesn't know where he is. I don't know where he is. Nobody knows where he is. What do you mean nobody knows? Well, uh, you... Deck officer! Deck officer! Excuse me, sir. Might I... Yes, sir? You know where Commander Skywalker is? I haven't seen him. It's possible he came in through the south entrance. It's possible. Why don't you go find out? It's getting dark out there. Yes, sir. Excuse me, sir. Might I inquire what's going on? Why not? Impossible, man. Come along, Artu. Let's find Princess Leia. Between ourselves, I think Master Luke is in considerable danger. Um, you know, there are, you know, there's this kind of interesting interchange with the droids who, you know, are comic relief. And this is sort of their first time coming in. We realize that they've, you know, melted down half of the cave or something by accident. Um, How will we and, ever dry her clothes? And meanwhile, Han's trying to like, you know, I, you know, I always wonder about Chewie in this case because they, they, they make Chewie in these scenes look a little bit like inept. But I, I always kind of wondered if he wasn't doing it on purpose because he knows how, you know, Han feels about Leia and he's trying to sort of stall to keep them from having to leave. Yeah, why'd you take this apart now? We're trying to leave, yeah. Because he's like, taking apart the... Yeah, why'd you take this apart now? And Chewbacca matchup. Like, <laughs> yeah. And that may also be because Chewie, Chewie is one of my favorite characters, but um, I, I really enjoy that little interchange and I, I agree with Jason. And that is actually one of the places where I even, I even more... I, I love the expansion of that scene in the radio drama since they... I think it builds a little better, but it, is, it does still culminate in that great... I'll see you in hell. Like one of our few swears. <laughs> the droids do get to show concern here too. Not you know further establishing that they're not just like these you know soulless that, automata. Right, right. That they're worried. R two in particular is worried about him, and so is C three PO because they become friends through the first movie. Because they're, they're going to have to be a unit for the rest of this movie, and we have to believe they care about each other, and they don't just happen to have these droids along the ride with them like like appliances. The personal relationships too. I mean, you, you get the sense with the bureaucrats and all of that that that. A lot of these people there who aren't our friends, right? They're there for the rebellion and all of that, but they're not—they're not focused on any individual, right? Even though this is the kid who blew up the Death Star, you know, they're focused on the bigger picture. And it takes the droids and it takes Han to say, "No, no, 
he, this guy matters and he doesn't even then he doesn't mobilize a strike force to go get him or something he just hops on a tauntaun and goes out into the dark which is you know that's it is it is his loyalty that saves luke and i i you know it's interesting that at the end even though we've got this big rebellion here it's going to be the characters who care about each other who are going to who are going to matter right and you know to speak again to the economy um how many scenes do mark hamill and harrison ford actually get together in this movie like two yeah, they're separated separated for most of the movie. They're separated for the vast majority yeah. of the movie, which I always thought was fascinating, was that we have so much of this this relationship is being, again, what sort of drew us into the that, that first movie and, and the, the rapport between these three characters. And yet Luke and, and Han spend the vast majority of this movie in totally separate places. And we only get, I think, you know, we get the scene, really, we get the scene where he, like, you know, hauls him out in the in the in the middle of nowhere right you know he finds him he, he shoves him inside the tauntaun um we get the scene where he's like after he's healed up and then we get the scene where he says goodbye and that's it like they probably exchange you know uh, a dozen a dozen lines well, that's enough because their their actions are they're showing through their actions what their relationship right. is like they don't have to have a scene where they say oh you're a real buddy to me i really care about you wouldn't like you to freeze to death uh speaking of the, the tauntaun being sliced open I would, that's probably the most graphic thing I ever saw in a movie up to the point when I saw that in a movie. Uh, and I think it, it, it worked. It's a great scene. It works so well to establish that this movie will be gritty and grim, even more so than burned up Owen and Baru, you know, like they're going to say, this, this is what you're in for. Get ready. This is not, this is not, let's go fly through sterile space and, and X-Wings and shoot down the X-Wing. This is, this has got the Tauntaun and shove the body inside. Well, and it's the pure pragmatism of it that it, it's not even what, what, what uh, I did notice when I was a kid watching it, but it has struck me since, is all, all Han's doing is buying time because he says this will keep you warm until I get the shelter up. So he's slicing open the Tauntaun basically for, you know, 15 minutes of warmth because they're in such dire circumstances. And it's just he doesn't even think about it other than that it, it smells, you know, you thought it smelled bad on the outside, you know, but it's it's worth it doing it. And it is that kind of just gritty, kind of brutal Hey, we got to do it to stay alive. That right, and he doesn't yeah. even think twice about no. that or about you know. I I always love that in something. I don't know why, but like something about him using the lightsaber. Yeah, I was going to bring always... that same point up. Like when how when when else do you see non Jedi's pick up and use a lightsaber? Like at that point, as a kid, you're like, is it even possible? Do you have to be a Jedi to use this thing? If you're Han Solo, you can you can pick it up. And... Well, he's very like, uh, uh, am I holding it the right way? <laughs> I hope I don't cut off my leg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That you know, get the job done. But again, I mean, in these actions, you see how much he cares about Luke because it's very much like, okay, I'm going to pick up a foreign weapon that I've made fun of nonstop in the previous movie. And I'm going to slice open a beast that's just died and endure, you know, freezing cold while I put up the shelter because I care about you and I don't want you to die. But I don't have to say that. (laughs) And to, 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 you know, speak again to sort of contrast to what I was saying before about uh, uh, Ford's interchange with the general this is a scene, and these are two, li- you know, a couple lines. Uh, the, then I'll see you in hell, which I always, of course, enjoyed, as as does everybody who's right thinking. Um, but also the the, and I thought they smelled bad on the outside. I mean, the the delivery in that line, um, I, I've always enjoyed because it's not just like you know him like looking at the camera and winking at the camera, right? Like there's that sort of pause, it's exasperation. And he's tired. He's tired from all this rescuing. He's tired from cutting the the thing open. Yeah, Yeah, like I I really, I don't know. That kind of makes him as a character, right? Because he still is kind of cocky and snarky, even though there's no one around to hear him being funny, right? Like, you know, this is literally him just going, oh, man, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Well, that's the same as a boring conversation anyway, right? He's just making jokes to himself. 
It's just what he does. Um, so that's why he's great. So, so um, then morning comes, and I, I always like to think that the guys who are around on their little reconnaissance looking for them, they got up and you know had some tea, had some breakfast. <laughs> It's a sunny day. Everything's sunny day. Fine. Yeah, it stretched out a little bit. Then got in their got in their little uh, ship and they and they flew out to see if Hans if they could find the frozen body of Han Solo. <laughs> and Captain Solo, do you copy? I say, hey, this is Rogue Two. Uh, and, and speaking morning. of the, the the background noises that I talked about in the New Hope thing, the sound of the X wing. What do they have? Yeah. In this one, you're going over the land. You have the scanning that. Yeah. You know that sound? That's, yeah. definitely, that's, that's the sound of speeders scanning for life forms while they look. And the sound of the speeders is very different from the sound of the X-Wings. It's more of a right. like they're low-flying stuff. Those, those, that soundtrack is such a character in all the Star Wars movies. And the character of Hoth and the speeders is very different than the character of the X-Wing. And, and interesting and different and fun. Like, there's so many great sound design moments. I think of the there's a very iconic, at the very beginning, uh, where, uh, where Luke rings up Han on his little comlink thing. And you've got that bling, 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 like little chimey sound, which I, it occurs to me thinking about it now. I think it, that's the only time it's used in this entire movie. And yet that, that, is a, that sound is crystal clear in my head because it, it, it has a meaning, right, associated with it. Well, it's stuck in your, you know, Ben Burtz created this very definitive soundscape. And I, that ties over for me, too, into the droids as well. It's like going back just a moment, the uh, the moment at the end of the evening when they close the blast doors oh, with yeah. R2 and, and C-3PO. That scene breaks my heart every time because you have through C-3PO, you know, R2 has been known to make mistakes from time to time. And then oh, he and walks away and oh, R2 dear, is dear. just standing there. And then he just goes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I and for me in that scene, it's chewy. Yeah, they time his like time is yell with the door closing. Oh yeah, that is that heartbreaking. And there's a great shot there too, right? Where there's a bit of a pan, like a zoom in on on or a dolly in on Leia, right? As the door is closing, and then yeah. Chewy throws his head back. That's a great little moment. The expression on Leia's face again, uh, underrated acting. Where like. Yeah. If they said, okay, now this scene, uh, Carrie, you're going to be Leia and the doors are closing. You're sad because Han's out there. and We'll put the camera on you for a few seconds. She could just stand there and put on a sad face. But she does so much more than that. She acts with no dialogue for, on screen for three or four seconds. She she acts and provides a performance, a believable performance of the mixed emotions going on with like, you know, is, is he going to be dead? Are they going to be okay? Am I worried? But I have to be strong. Look at her face in that scene. It, it's Oh, there's a lot packed in there. So it's enough to make you concerned, even though you know, like, hey, these guys are the heroes of the story. They've they can't make die, out. but... <laughs> and, and the thing about performances like that is, again, I'm not a filmmaker, so I don't know how this, this actually goes. My impression is that it's not so much that, like, oh, she's a better actor than she was in other movies. The director makes that because the director decides, I'm going to do seven takes of your face for three seconds, whereas Lucas, as a director, goes, okay, and get Leia's face shot, okay, and move on to the next one. He wouldn't take more than one take of that. He would just one take on everything, as long as the lighting's good, the blue screens are keyed up right, uh, everything was fine, the sounds, don't worry, we'll loop the sound in and go on to the next one, whereas a director will coax a performance out of that even if coaxing a performance is just like we'll take 20 20 takes on this like kubrick is famous for that taking a bazillion takes uh i think that's important you know definitely i think actually that kirshner took fewer takes than lucas in terms of filmmaking wise but he also the the magic about kirshner behind the camera here and you can really see it in the timing with the facial expressions and with the timing between characters and everything is that this this script was rehearsed not to death, but to the right exact point between getting it rehearsed to the point where it's perfect, but not over-rehearsed to the point where 
these people, it sounds like they automatically know what they're saying and it's boring and we already know what the conversation is going to be like. It's that, you know, you take just the right amount and you manage to capture it on screen. And that happens pretty much for every single scene in this movie, which is what makes it so special, I find. And if he took fewer takes than Lucas, it's probably because he was a much more competent filmmaker at the ages uh-huh. that they were during this time. You know what I mean? He knew when Older he knew too. when the right take was and when to, you know, when to actually have the cameras rolling and when to rehearse. And that's the mark of a great director. So then Luke spends a whole Luke spends spends a whole night, you know, in a in a Wampa cave and in a tent. And so what do they do when they get him back to base? They put him in a tank. Oh, it's the diaper tank. tank. It's a yeah. back it's a back to tank. Come on. Yes. Yes, the back to tank. Watching Weird. this with my friend Leah at like six or seven, I think there's repeatedly going through Empire and and watching this scene and just cringing, where it's just watching Luke bob up and down in the giant back to tank with the. Well, there's a great shot in the in the making of book which shows him with the uh, the Phantom of the Opera mask. Have, they, have you guys seen that? Apparently, there's a whole cut scene where he's got like a mask on his face, you know, that they take off, right? But there's a shot of him in here, and it really it looks like a Phantom of the Opera mask. It's like covering half of his face. And of course, you know, we haven't discussed the practical impact, which is, I believe, it was between uh, A New Hope and Empire that he was in a car accident, right? right? And basically had to have reconstructive surgery. And so that's why he doesn't quite look right. <laughs> well, that's why the Wampa punches him in the face, and he's right. got all of the the damage and all that is it's them sort of saying, well, his face doesn't look the same because he got punched by a wampa. Right. I mean, and, and you know, they had to deal with the practicalities of that. And on, on a, on a, on a side note and a, and a sad note, I think unfortunately <laughs> as a result, Mark Hamill hasn't aged very well, probably because of the, the technology that was available at that time. But <laughs> the, um, this is also the point in the movie where we get the, uh, where we get a laugh it up fuzzball. Uh, scruffy looking nerf herder. I mean, who's scruffy looking? These are examples of corny lines that that are sold by these actors. Sometimes the the dialogue in this movie is great, and sometimes they require a little bit of effort. And these lines work because of the rapport the actors have and the performances. Because if you just give these lines to, like, I don't know, like a middle school theater troupe or something and have them read them, they don't work. But in this scene, you, you buy them. You just buy them. Well, there's there's great cadences. There's great you know, laugh it up fuzzball. Like you know, there's a yes, great cadence that's, to that's that what, that doesn't work if you just said laugh it up fuzzball. Right. Um, and I think you know, I, I and and again, the sound design, right? You know, I love I love Chewie's little <laughs> like it's not it's it's just a strange little guffaw, right? Like, but it, it it defines him so much as a character because he is a he is understanding everything that is going on and amused by the situation, and he he is the only person who can get away with that, right? No one else is going to sort of like – everyone else might look like a little bit askance at Han, but he's the guy who knows Han, right? He knows him cold, and he's his best friend and can, you know, and can make fun of him like that because of their relationship. And I think that says something in and of itself and the fact that they can – that Han can shoot back, laugh it up, fuzzball without, you know, you know, pissing off the Wookiee and having his arms ripped off. And and these uh, these funny sayings that they have, fuzzball, ner- scruffy-looking nerfurter, and la- laser brain. Uh, la- laser brain, right? <laughs> so these particular phrases speak to kind of like older script writers who don't know what is actually cool in the vernacular of the kids these days but want to make up something that sounds futuristic, right? But they're framed by completely competent dialogue. So I don't know where you get your delusions from laser brain. Laser brain is the corny thing written by the old guy who doesn't know how to make something futury sounding. But I don't know where you get your delusions is a nicely turned phrase where hundreds of other clumsier phrases could have been used. And if you put uh, 
you so crazy laser brain or i don't you know or something like that that's just bad scripting you're dumb yeah like i I don't know what you're thinking laser brain but i don't know where you get your delusions is better fitting for the character plus the delivery she provides and then it makes you buy the laser brain so it's the the writing also helps here by not being just like you have to excuse the laser brains and the nerf herders and they work because they're surrounded by otherwise completely sturdy incompetent dialogue how you feeling kid don't look so bad to me and he looks strong enough to pull ears off a gun dart. Thanks to you. That's two you owe me, Junior. Well, your worship, looks like you managed to keep me around for a little while longer. I had nothing to do with it. General Rykin thinks it's dangerous for any ships to leave the system until we've activated the energy field. That's a good story. I think you just can't bear to let a gorgeous guy like me out of your sight. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Laugh it up, fuzzball. But you didn't see us alone in the South Passage. She expressed her true feelings for me. Mike, why you stuck up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder? Who's scruffy-looking? And not just dialogue, but, you know, the whole physicality of the scene, too, right? Like, the way Han sort of struts over to Leia, you didn't see us in the South yeah, Corridor yeah. together. You know, you know, he's sort of sticking his chest out, and putting his arm around her. She expressed her true feelings for me. <laughs> you know, I, there's a great, there again, you know, speaking to, when Ford is on, he is on, right? Like, he has got that charm, and he's got that you know, kind of, he's, you know, the cockiness and everything like that that totally sells that character. Even the way he exits the room after they kiss, he's like, yeah, see you later. Right, fine, I'm out of here. Yeah, well, so that, that scene, so we've got the, with, we've got the, in hindsight, really creepy uh, uh, kissing your sister scene where um, obviously Leia is just trying to get um, Han's goat by kissing Luke. And the aftermath of that kiss, though, not only is there the weirdness of the fact that they're brother and sister, as it turns out, but the aftermath of that, first off, while they're kissing, the look on Harrison Ford's face is priceless. It is. Oh, he, my God. It, it, it's, it's this combination of a little bit of horror, but also a lot of, all right, I see what you're doing here. Well played. <laughs> right? And, and It's like, I can't let myself get mad. No. I'm not going to. I'm not going to show it that, that that would give that she would win. If I did that, I'm just going to take it all in. And then he just kind of nods. And then the best line of Chewbacca dialogue ever, where he basically goes, and boy, I want the subtitles for that. Right. <laughs> well, and, and 3PO, 3PO toddles over to get a yeah, closer yeah. view, which I always find ridiculously hilarious. <laughs> well, he's fascinated by. Apparently. And she steps up and walks away. I just love, Luke, looking, nodding, putting his hands behind oh, yeah. his back, cool. and going, yes. "Oh yeah." yeah. <laughs> Although he wasn't cool during. If you look at his face, his face during, no, he looks like, "What the heck is going on here?" But then he recovers and says, "Yeah, you know what? Yeah, that's right. That's right." Yeah, well, I mean, and, and he realizes he's getting one over on Han too. Right? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I, mean, I think even he realizes whammy. he's being played to a certain extent. But I think that that's in some ways more important. Who's cool now, Han Solo? Ha! Yeah, exactly. Who's the kid? <laughs> you know what I find interesting is that. Leia does not use pet names and jokes for anybody except for Han. You never hear her call Luke anything, but with Han, it's always like she she calls him by his name maybe once or twice, and every every other opportunity, it's laser brain, it's nerf herder, it's you know scoundrel. She, I mean, she just... you know, and yeah, and again, Luke is kind of in some ways Luke is the least important person in that scene, right? 
despite it being a scene about him, you know, coming back from the dead, basically, it's basically an excuse for the two of them to use him to fence with each yes. other. But you get the impression that they're the older, I don't know what their relative ages are supposed to be. I assume Han is supposed to be older than Luke. He's supposed to be like 20, I mean, Harrison Ford's like 27, and they're both like closer to 20, 21. But like, the, the, they come off as the adults. Han and Leia come off as the adults, and he's the kid in the room when their their fight is going on and gets wrapped up into it, you know. Mommy and daddy. I just like, yeah, again, the, the Han Solo leaving. was just like, take it easy. Yeah, he's out of there. <laughs> Next thing I have in my notes, actually, is there's this great scene where you see the big uh, Imperial ships that we're used oh, to seeing, yeah. that, that, and then the shadow comes over them, and there's the giant ship that Darth Vader is on. Well, what a great way to play off that scene from right. A New Hope, well, it's right? It's one-upmanship because it's a sequel. It's you, oh, you thought the... Yeah, exactly. You thought those ships were big. Remember how big those ships were? Guess what? They get completely Daddy's eclipsed. Home. Well, but even before you get to that scene, there was a tr- the transition to that scene I love because it's the it's the Imperial Probe Droid, which we can all do our impressions of. <laughs> so, so they shoot it. Han, Han radios back. It's a good bet the Empire knows we're here. Big wipe transition. Cue Imperial March, which is the first time I believe you hear the Imperial March yes, in, this, in this movie. And what an entrance and in ever. that song. Ever, yeah. And ever. It does not exist in A New Hope. Accompanies the realization we were just talking about of scale of like all right we understand yeah. sequels have to take it up a notch well you want it up a notch here you go new song right. you've never heard awesome song great star wars song badass darth vader imperial march song superstar well, and you Shire. need to give him right you're wondering like okay he's got you know in the first movie he kind of had like the death star right like that was his stomping ground so like what are you going to give him in this movie that's impressive and, and because what's fascinating about this movie is that you know so much of it takes place sort of on the run that it makes sense. You know, he's got a flagship, right? He's got something that's enormous and that is, like, representative of the might of the Empire in a way that the Death Star, you know, the Death Star was menacing, but that was always kind of Tarkin's too, right? And so I think giving him his own due with that giant ship is, is it's effective. And he's got his own little chamber within the giant ship, this badass black clamshell chamber oh, thing yeah. that he's inside of, which is just, you don't even understand why it's there initially, and you're like, but that's cool. It's important to mention from a production uh, uh, standpoint, too, I think that, um, and I, I, again, something that we talked about briefly in the Star Wars podcast is that, you know, the Vader outfit in Star Wars is not, it's it's kind of flawed, right? He looks kind of wimpy at kind of times, and you can see through the eyes and whatever. Like they made him over, right? He looks he looks menacing in this in in Empire, right? And shiny and evil. It's and shiny, sh- and, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's effective. Like you see all those shots where you get there's so many reaction shots in here. Remember that? So it starts out with them bickering, you know, that the officers bickering about whether or not they've actually found. You know the rebels right. could be and smugglers. You see him, he walks over, right, and you just see the eyes of all the guy of the guys in the crew pits watching him go, right? <laughs> you know, there's and I think there are if you pay attention to all the reaction shots to Vader, um, which I think come across as very subconscious. You're not necessarily thinking about them directly, but I was paying attention to them a lot this time, and I realized how effective those are in you know making us think. Well, not only is he scary, right, but he's scaring the people whose side he's on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, John mentioned the. Uh, we can talk a little bit about the Empire here. I think and, uh, from a different, a few different parts of this movie. John mentioned the, um, 
chamber that Vader's in, and and of course later we see the scene where um, his his mask is coming down as it's opening up, which is that that great moment that's like just a little tiny tiny taste, and you're like, oh, oh but it's, it's Darth Vader's head, oh, and then it's gone. But I have to. Sh- He's a dude. I have to share this with you that um that I'm I'm sitting there thinking Darth Vader's chamber is is sort of interesting and strange and why is it there like john said and and i'm I'm thinking how to phrase that in my notes and my son my seven-year-old son turns to me and says daddy darth vader's office is really weird (laughs) (laughs) it's like i can't put it any better than that and then he made he took his fingers of both hands and kind of put them together like it goes like this you know with the little things coming out it's true it's darth vader's office it is kind of it would seem kind of impractical, but I assume it's sort of like for security that he needs to. Well, like maybe there's an atmosphere in there so he can, so he can have his helmet off. Right. You know, it's stuffy. I'm sure. It's just a strange office, unorthodox office. I have to throw in my favorite running joke scene with my friend, my friend Evan, who's a who's a big Star Wars fan as well. And we had a joke when we were kids. My favorite one of my favorite shots in this entire movie is, you know, Vader's like, that's it. The rebels are there, you know, and. Then he goes, General Veers, and he turns around, right? Yes, and he's right there. And General Veers is like <laughs> <Yeah>. two <laughs> inches from his face. And every time it happens, I picture him going like, oh, why are you so close? Personal yes. space! That is, that is definitely something that I noticed in that scene. It's such a weird... But I have to give super props to... Uh, is that Julian Glover, I think? Um who doesn't blink, right? Yep. Vader's like a head whips around, yep. and he's just like, nope, I'm here. So you work with Darth um, Vader, you gotta take it. Later, later to become, um, later to play a part in an Indiana Jones movie. It is. Well. I, I have one of my notes here. Is hey, it's Julian Glover. It's Walter Donovan. It's what did I tell you, Doctor Jones? Never trust. See, anyone. for me, he will always be uh, Scaroth, last of the Jaggeroth from uh, the City of Death uh, episode of Doctor Who. That's where I first met Julian Glover. So when when he was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I was like, hey, it's that guy. It's the guy from Doctor Who. I didn't even notice that he was in this movie until years later. Jeez, he's General Veers. And there was also, we learned the the way that you get ahead in the military, in the Empire, (laughs) which is don't be choked to death by the Force. Yeah. Well, there's a good economy of dialogue in these scenes, too, because when the guys get in trouble with Vader, again, I can just imagine in a modern movie, or you have to have the bad guy say a whole bunch of bad stuff where he likes, I'm really, you know, some sort of big evil guy speech or talking about how he loves to kill people, blah, 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 this one. Quick choking. He's as clumsy as he is stupid. Get him on my screen and choke and next. Right. And well, and think about that. It builds again. Oh, you're right? in but, we, but we've built on it, right? Because in the last movie, he, you know, yeah. he's in the room, right? He reaches over he and he like, over puts TV. up his finger. Like, I'm crushing, I'm crushing your head. I'm crushing your head. Um, but in this one, it's like he doesn't do anything, right? He turns on the screen. The guy's right. not even in the same right. room you don't, with You don't him. need to pantomime it anymore. No. Right. Just, exactly. He's just sort of looking at him. The guy keels over and you're like. Well, he probably didn't just, like, choke on a pistachio or something. You had to pantomime it in the first movie, otherwise the audience wouldn't understand what was going on. You had to make it clear. Right, now the, guy, you know. the guy in the black suit making the pinchy thing with his fingers is doing it. But now <laughs> that's established, you don't have to do that thing, and it also serves to make him look like he's more and, bad. And I want to give super props in this point to, to a secondary character, um, uh, Piet, who I think... He is another one of those great just sort of professional actors, right, who... This was a gig or whatever, but he really brings so which guy is you know this? the whole thing. He Piet's the guy who replaces huh. the, the Admiral Ozzel who is killed off, right? And if you watch his expressions through the whole thing, 
and just his his behavior he's just like he is in there right he is doing that role and he is he is working it like a professional i love my favorite shot of him in the entire movie which will come which is basically the last shot of him is you know at the very end when the when the falcon gets away you see the look on his face when he realized oh shit, yeah i'm dead ox they got away and like you just you can see like the color drain out of his face, and I'm like that is good. <laughs> and so I and through this entire thing, I think he does an awesome job of like he he's the guy who realizes just how tenuous his position is, right? And and he's seen his predecessor choked in front of his eyes and knows like what the stakes are, and he's trying his damnedest to make sure that they you know he he keeps this this crazy dark lord guy happy. Like he's just a, he's just a soldier, right? He's just the guy who's flying the ship, and he's like. I, you know, I ended up here. I, you know, I'm not really sure what happened, but boy, I better keep this guy happy or else I'm going to keel over in a few minutes. I was just bringing in coffee earlier. Now here I, I am. I'm in charge. <laughs> now I'm the admiral. Used to be just, I was just an intern. Now I'm an admiral. <laughs> the, the interesting thing about Piet too is, as I recall, he has a slightly expanded role in the, in the radio drama, which I suspect is one of the reasons why Dan likes him. Because he's, he's, it's very much his... But even the understated parts of him in the, in the movie, you know, he's a secondary character, right? He doesn't... He's not the main villain. He's not even like, you know, he's not Tarkin or anything of that level. He's just this soldier. And yet, I think those moments that he plays are He has a story. So, well, not only does he have a story, but he's emblematic of this whole empire. Again, these, these are, you know, there's a well-oiled military machine, right? Very professional, very disciplined. And then you throw in this rogue guy with a cape and a helmet, right? Who's just stalking around, killing guys left and right. This is, this is extremely unmilitary. And so you kind of, but he, he knows like, oh man, you know, the, he's the emperor's, you know, he's the emperor's little protege. I can't screw around with him. I got to listen to him, even though I'm, you know, an admiral or a captain or whatever. Um, and I think it's just, it's a fascinating dynamic that we get of the empire, which at the same time, the villains in this are at the same time, this huge monolithic, you know, very like, you know, military industrial complex. And at the same time, there's this huge mystical dark side element. And the meshing of those two, the, the edges there are just really fascinating. You know, when you have bad guys in, in, uh, in movies, uh, there's two ways they can go. They can go with the crazy maniac who's like, I'm crazy. I'm the biggest, baddest bad guy because I'm the craziest of the bad guys. And they rant and they rave and they yell at people and they kill people and so on and so forth. And then they have the, the steely guy who's like, he's the quiet guy. But if you cross him, he kills you and he's just always quiet and reserved, right? Vader is it doesn't fit into either one of those cliches because he's certainly not ranting and raving and yelling at people like he's not a hothead right he's pretty much calm but on the other hand he's frustrated and angry about things going wrong he's not like so cool that you think he's a sociopath that just has no feelings about anything he's frustrated when people get away he's frustrated when his guys don't perform correctly but he doesn't yell he doesn't rant and rave. He chokes him out. He, choke, he chokes him out silently. <laughs> he picks the next guy in command. You're in charge now. He makes his wishes clear. Don't fail me because I'm actually kind of annoyed about this. But I'm not going to go <laughs> yelling at everybody. I'm not going to be ranting and raving. He's, well, in the first movie, he does yell, right? But he doesn't yes, do it he, anymore. He's a different Vader. He's yeah. more badass now. He's less desperate and frantic and stuff like that. But you can still see underneath it all is this human who's frustrated about the fact that he can't get right. his giant fleet to catch these rebels. And, and again, from a from a production standpoint 
point. We, we commented in, in the earlier, in the Star Wars episode, like Vader's lines come across very rushed, right? The, the, clearly they're dubbing stuff in over afterwards. And so I want to know what happened to those plans with David the Paris now. You know, like it's all very rushed. Whereas in this one, they, they clearly took a lot more time to match up. And everything Vader does is, as John is saying, it's very slow, right? It's very deliberate. There's a lot of time, and everything meshes much better, and it makes him that much more menacing. Because you know, like like you're saying, he's 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 not he's frustrated, but he's not like harried, right? He's um, and I think that that gives a lot to his presence. And plus, they give him these great little turns of phrase that are threatening, but not in ways that you would typically associate as threatening. I mean, there's a scene later on he says the word admiral. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> don't disappoint me again, Admiral. Admiral and, you, <laughs> and you're like, you don't need to say, or I'll kill you. Like the previous guys, right? It's implied. <laughs> Admiral means I you about to die. <laughs> it's a code word. So, it's a so, safe word. Um, we we are uh, we should go back to to Hoth now for the the first big because uh, we've been talking all this time and it's been great, but we haven't gotten to the first big set piece of the movie, which is the. Uh, assault on the yeah. rebel base by the Imperial walkers. But first I have to mention my, aren't those medical droids very friendly and concerned about the well-being of their patients? Cause there's a whole, <laughs> so. there's a whole scene that is just strangely the robot or the droid being concerned that Luke will have a good day and take well, care know, of himself. Mental health is part of overall health. You can't it neglect. Uh, oh, absolutely. The, the I'm glad the aspect. rebels know that. He wants, he wants to make sure that they can evacuate those, the heavier equipment too. Yes. Oh, of course. Well, he's concerned because that he's going to be left behind and taken over by the, the empire, which I assume is the case, right? It's, it's like, all right, they're going to reboot well, me well, now. They, oh. they actually have a joke about that in the radio drama. The says, radio drama is this whole long conversation between the two of them. Well, and he says, I once practiced, the, the droid says, like, I once practiced medicine in an imperial clinic. I take your meaning. Like, you know, he doesn't want to be left behind. <laughs> right. I just love but that. I role. think that scene, that scene in this movie get, gives them a chance to start playing Luke's theme music to say that the, the sort of happy-go-lucky, you're not happy-go-lucky, but I want to fight for the rebels. Luke is back. He's better now. He's de He's out of the thing. He's that, that scene. That scene between Han and Leia is over. His theme music starts to get playing. He's getting suited up. He's ready to and go. He's off to the and, off to the uh, you know to the pilot stuff that we right. know him. And and, so he, well. and he gets it. And he sits in his thing. It's not an X wing, but he sits in, in a thing. And so now everyone who saw the previous movies like Luke in an orange jumpsuit going into a thing. All right, it's not a spaceship, but it's some kind of a ship, right? He's got a co-pilot, and what does the co-pilot says? I could take on the whole empire the whole myself. Over. Yeah. I know Poor what you mean, and, and the reason, bastard. as we always add to that scene, he dies. Yeah, <laughs> and, but but the thing is that the reason that line works is is because every kid who came out of a new hope after they came out of a new hope th- thought that they could take on the whole empire themselves. So Luke finally gets back into the ship where we want to see him as the little kid saying, "Yes, Luke, get back in the ship." And he says, and this guy says, "I feel like I could take on the whole empire himself." And Luke says, "I know what you mean." The kids in the audience are like, "Yes, I know what you mean too," because I too feel like I can take on the entire empire just like you did in that trench thing, and I'm dead in a million times underneath my covers with my X-wings. And you know, it's. I, I, and we 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 skipped over briefly like one moment I wanted to speak to as we talked about the economy, which is which is Luke and Han's farewell scene, right? Which is I believe the dialogue is, "You all right? Yeah, take care of yourself. You too. Like that's yep. it. And all it's all de- and it's all delivery, right? And and I think what's fascinating about that scene is like you take those lines and they're totally generic. Yeah. There's nothing that couldn't be in you wouldn't see in a. There's no substance to the lines, and yet there is something in the way. 
that you know in the the rapport between those two characters um that that lets you see between the lines and 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 the subtleties there but it's fascinating like that's the these guys aren't going to see each other for another you know like the rest of this like the 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 hour and a half that are left in this film or two hours that are left in this film and that's how they say goodbye (laughs) no high fives nothing and Luke does this little two double take, two step too. If you watch when Luke is about to turn away, he half turns away, then half turns back. Lots of little physical uh, acting there, besides the lines. And yeah, I, and it's, it's a nice little scene. Um, it but it amazes me that they got away with it with such really generic dialogue. But it, you know, it, but it works. And now we're back to flying. So so Imperial uh, Snowwalker scene. Anybody have any uh, any thoughts about this? I mean, it's a cool action scene, uh, right? It's a good thing they have tow cables. Tow cables, yes. Who thought to put them on? I I played Rogue Leader way, 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 way too many times to count growing up as a kid. Uh, but I have to say, of the entire movie, the Hoth battle infuriates me because it makes no sense in the space of, like, what, an hour, two hours, how they have gone from fighting an initial space battle to all of a sudden, even though there's some sort of energy shield over the planet, they have managed to land... These big giant hulking creatures get okay. them out of a star destroyer. Get them apparently within ten miles of the base. Get them set up. Also, get Darth Vader landed on the planet. Like the logistics of this, which I didn't notice as okay. a kid, and I they're energy shields. They prevent you from shooting things onto the planet. They don't prevent things from going onto the planet. They're particle. They're ray shields, not particle shields. Okay, I'm going to broach the subject of the prequels here to say. They show the details of how an invasion like this works in episode one. And I think in seeing that, you see very well why it's uh, probably fine that they don't show it here. They, they very wisely don't show <laughs> well, it. And they explain it in the, and they explain it in the radio drama as right. well. Because it's not, it's not important. I have no desire to see them explain it. It was just something that always infuriated well, it get, me. It does get like, explained. I thought there was a long enough time gap because the, the rebels had plenty of time to prepare. They had time to dig trenches. They had time to get all set up. They had time to get their speeders ready. I got the impression. And they got their plan with the ion cannon to get the, to, to, to evacuate right, like, the base. Yeah. There was a, there's a time and they're waiting. They're like, when will the enemy appear? I, th- I felt like there was a long time gap. It, between the time when they said it's a good bet the Empire knows we're here to the time when they could finally see the Imperial walkers through their binoculars. They came from far off. Right. I mean, they, they land them outside the shield sort of and have them walk in instead yeah. of just being able to drop the, them like right on top of the base. The now, why they, built them so, say, why they built them so tall and spindly and skinny, that's another... And why there are tow cables in the snow speeders, if you think about it too much... They got to tow things around. Yeah, it's really you know, important. You gotta move, how else do you move things? You got a tow package on your car? Yeah. No? It, well, you won't be taking down any walkers. It's kind of like uh, Voltron's blazing sword. It's like, just go with the tow cables first. Don't bother with the blasters. That, that arm is too strong for blasters. Guess what? You know, we could have guessed that. Use the tow cables. I, lo- I love the comments about how, you know, Ren was talking about playing Rogue Leader, and it occurs to me, I think I think it might have been my friend Tony, although I don't know if he was quoting someone else, saying, like, man, I have played the Battle of Hoth probably as, at least as many times as if I, like, in video games as I've played, like, the inv- like D-Day on Normandy beaches. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> Those actually... are, like, the two battle scenes that are yes. in every freaking game. <laughs> so, um... You know, I, I don't I don't have a lot to say about the about the battle itself. For me, the the scene that really grabs me is after right after it um as as the Empire really it's the line, right? It's Imperial forces have entered the base. 
That's oh, Imperial, yeah. Imperial that's Troops. Imperial the best. Troops have entered the best. That that's the thing that gets. That's the stuff that I really love. Is is, is that's the oh geez we got to get out of yeah. here now. They're coming. There's the there's the sound. There's the guy on the radio is like oh they've entered the you know and he's gone. Yeah. And uh, that's the stuff. I mean, it's a fun action scene with the walkers and you know, but but Luke gets to shimmy up that thing and throw a grenade yeah, in. Luke, he takes out a whole ad ad himself, showing that he's resourceful and yeah, you know he, right. he's not it's on fun. top of his game entirely. But he's resourceful and can do things that other people can't do because he has a lightsaber and he didn't really use the force, but he was he used his brain and he he crashed his ship and his co-pilot died. And apparently R two D two can fly the X wing short distances himself to get it out to the staging area. It was towed towed out with the tow cables. cables. (laughs) You're right. It was the tow cables. Jeez, people. Well, and and we also have. um, What was I thinking? That we we got to see that wedge is alive. Uh, I'm always very excited about that. Shut, Jackson. Dear wedge. Good shot, Jensen. Yeah, Dennis Lawson. So, and and, uh, and also great. you got the smug AT-AT driver. The shield will be down in moments. You may start your descent. Look at the look on his face with that with that helmet as he's like going. As like, that's right, I've got an AT-AT. I'm just I'm cruising into town on the AT-AT. Don't you love that he has the little pocket-sized Darth Vader hologram too? Yeah. If I if I was that guy, I'd be like the Woo! mini the mini hologram that that Vader uses to appear because a screen would be no good when you could why have a screen yeah. when you could have a little hologram of Darth Vader. It's like a Jesus on you your desk, like an action figure. <laughs> don't 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 bother having a full size no, no. Darth Vader hologram. A little tiny. That would be too scary. <laughs> Not enough room in the cockpit. Then he's got a periscope. He blows up the shield. He's he's doing his job. He's competent. Right up to the part where you know actually apparently he's supposed to he's supposed to die or something. I was reading in one of the other in a cut scene or something. Oh, I was reading online. Someone had a, a the cutscenes that are I think included in the special edition Blu-rays that just came out where they said like basically he's supposed to get he's supposed to get schmiced at the after that scene, but it was all I, cut. I always think that um when when Luke uh is repelling up the the into the belly of the the snow speed but he's going to go in to the uh he's gonna throw his lightsaber in and then jump in and then go go kill everybody <laughs> and he never does it turns out because for whatever reason i always read the thing he's throwing is his lightsaber and it's not it's a grenade it's a grenade he uses the yeah. same hand as he's holding the lightsaber in but, but it's yeah. true and i realized uh, th- what made me realize that is because my son made the same mistake he was like after it blows up he goes oh i thought he threw his lightsaber in there and i said well that's ridiculous why would anybody do that <laughs> Don't be silly, boy. Yeah. The thing I actually really, you know, the the big battle is is nice. Uh, but I also I love the scene where Leia is basically there till the bitter end, and everything's falling across yeah. and around her, and she's like, "No, get to your stations. I can't leave. I need to make sure everybody's fine." No, I love I love that the whole uh, Imperial troops are in the base, um, and she's she's holding out until they sort of like can can her to go the scene where darth vader is now i mean he's walking down that corridor the icy corridor i mean that is such i mean just the image of that that's like oh geez right he's here right and when they run down one corridor the the it collapses he walks to a place like he owns it oh, right yeah. he's like he's not yeah. he's not creeping around checking around corners he's he's walking and in you got those you got the creepy snow troopers too Right, like yeah. you got the creepy the storm the stormtroopers who have the white like oh, yeah. masks they're, on. They're, they're on almost addition, like a Nazi, uh, like Nazi yeah, stormtroopers. <laughs> yeah, they're they're like super yeah. creepy. And then um, Han's like, "Well, I'm going to take Leia to the to the transport," and then the, the, it collapses. So, oh, she's got to go with him. 
Darn. Darn. And so he, he radios. Chewie totally rigged that corridor oh, totally. to collapse. Chewie is, he knows everything that's going on. Oh, okay. So let's let's take a second and speak of, you know, I love the scene where they're in the docking bay, right? They're running, you know, the 3PO after all first. Goes, where, where are you going? You know, right, 3PO is toddling yeah. along after them. And then he... The, he, you know, I love the the urgency in that scene. So he he like they run into the into the hangar bay and they're like they're like sprinting right. They got to get into the. You Falcon. get the sense that Darth Vader is like right behind them and they're running they're running really fast and Darth Vader is walking slowly and catching right. up to them. It's, it's Pepe it's Pepe Le Pew. Um and so and so three PO gets on and like I love the fact that the ramp starts to go up while he's still on the ramp oh, right yeah. like they're they're getting the hell out of there and so you know they flip everything on and in one of my favorite moments in that entire movie. No dialogue. And flip all the Falcon on, the Falcon on, and it goes boo, and Han goes wham. Oh, well, the Fonzie, you know, he does the Fonzie thing, uh, and and also three PO is trying to talk to him, trying to bicker him on his head. He turns to three PO, puts up his one, puts up one finger, looks at him, no dialogue, and then I get a screenshot if I could. And I don't even know if that couldn't have been in the script. That's just that's just Harrison Ford going. I'm going to give three PO a look. I'm going to put up one finger, and then I'm going to go on. I mean, I, and I think the Falcon, again, just speaking, you know, the Falcon is just a character in and of itself, more in this movie than, than in either of the others, I think. But in this movie, it's, it's such an integral part of the character. And, you know, they even reference it later on, like a character. I don't know where your ship learned to communicate. You know, I, I think that's great. And I, I love her as a character. You know, I've got a few extra surprises and that little gun comes out of the back. Would it help if I got out and pushed? It might. It might. Oh, might. I love that line. And then the little gun pod that comes out and just, like shoots a bunch of the stormtroopers. Right. And they're I, all kind I, of like, I, oh, hey, he's got that thing. Wow. I just, uh, I, I don't know. I, li- I love anything in the Falcon is, is awesome. Yeah, but it's also a mess, right? It, it like, it, yeah, Chewie that's why was it's taking great. it apart. And, and, and there's like that big like control panel and Han's flipping all the switches like, oh, I hope this works. You know, <laughs> where he, it's not clear he knows exactly what's going on, but, you know, he'll figure, yeah, I'll make it work somehow. I mean, I think I, that's what he's I love about He's always so happy when it works. He's like, see? <laughs> I love that's what I love about the Falcon though is, is is she's not reliable, right? It would be so easy if like the ship was the Deus Ex Machina, right? Like ah, the Falcon will always get him out of those jams, right? You know, no worries, it's the fastest hunk of junk in the galaxy, and yet it breaks down a lot. Well, most sports cars are like that, right? It's fast, but it's not reliable, right? Well, but it's also cobbled together, right? Because he's sort of tweaked everything and you know hot rodded it, right? Come on, baby, there's, hold together. There's great rhythm to the scene, too, where they, they have to intercut between the dialogue, which is snappy and talking about the thing, and the physical comedy of getting the thing to start, and the, being chased by Darth Vader walking down the hallway, and shooting the stormtroopers. Like, that's all sliced together, and so that it just flows nicely with the dialogue and, and the little snippets, and then, and then culminating their escape. And that's not Punch easy it. to do. That's not easy filmmaking when you have... There's a lot going on where you have to cut back and forth between them in a way that doesn't kill the rhythm of the dialogue, but lets you know exactly what's going on. You know, it's it's not easy to do because you see it done so poorly in, for example, episode one, which was just referenced. Yes. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Why would you do that? Negatively. But yes. Yeah. Timing and editing are two things that this movie has in spades. I brought I brought up episode one specifically because it, it, it is, you know, the, I think there's a parallel there about these imperial assaults and, and how too much sort of disclosure outside of where you really want to focus, which is on the base. Um yeah, yes, you could see the troops massing and all of that, but it's better if you don't, actually. No, it takes away the rhythm. Yeah. It's one of those things that, sure, you can nitpick in your head and you can be frustrated about, but it doesn't actually take away from the enjoyment of the movie. It's just one of those things where you 
think about it afterwards. You're like, huh. You take it on faith. You're like, well, obviously yeah. they landed outside the shield and are sending these guys in. Okay. All right. I'll go with that. Sure, it works. <laughs> so we've spent, we've spent up to this point, it's like 40, 50 minutes into the movie. We spent this time on the snow planet with these white scenes. Uh, and then we finally get Luke back into an X-Wing, back in his orange X-Wing suit, and back into space. Yes. And the, the decrease in brightness from the movie screen at that point when he finally goes into space in the X-Wing and the music mellows out and there's just a star field and R2 and the beeping is just such a relax, a visual relief from the first big set-piece battle type thing. It's like back to the familiar, back to Luke in an X-Wing and relaxing. It's like a breather moment. Ah, Starfield. That's what I think of as Star Wars. That X-Wing on a Starfield. And then we cut back to, oh, and by the way, Han's not doing so hot. Right. Can I just, I want to say one thing about that, about Luke's exit, where he's like, all right, I'll see you at the rendezvous point. And then they get out into the, the clear black of space. He's like, no, R2, we're not actually going to the rendezvous point. And R2's like, what? He's like, no, 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 we're going to Dagobah. Through his little and screen where he communicates yes. with Luke. But the the thing I love the most about that is the, the his little aside to R two where R two asks him presumably he's like I can autopilot you there right, right. and yeah. and he's like no 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 you get the feeling I'll, he doesn't really trust yeah, him yeah. right like no. we should just go to the rendezvous <laughs> you just take a nap and I'll get us to Dagobah yeah Dagobah sure. by yeah. way of the rendezvous like, that's point a place. <laughs> if if a droid could raise an eyebrow skeptically R two would be a yeah exactly. All right, I am going to stop us, press the pause button, because we have so much to say about The Empire Strikes Back that we just can't fit it in one podcast. So I'm going to ask... Wait, there's a cliffhanger? Yes, it's like the old serials that the Star Wars movies are modeled after. There's a, we're do- will, will we finish talking about this? Actually, this is the point where Dan Morin is frozen in carbonite and does not return until... Uh- <laughs> Late in the next movie. You're just trying to shut me yeah, up. I get it. Like All right. Something like that. So Dan, so Dan, can you come back and talk about this again next week? Oh, wait. Sorry. I was thought I was in Carbonite. Um, no, <laughs> that was yeah. the sound of Dan and Carbonite. Oh, Zing! good. <laughs> you, can, you, can you put in that sound of a yeah, koosh? I'll do that. Afterwards. That's some editing. Ticlo yes. Carbon. Sorry. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, yes, I would be delighted to come okay. back and continue good. talking about that. John Empire. Syracuse, I know you'll be back. Always with you, what cannot be done. <laughs> and Serenity Caldwell, uh, thank you for sharing your perspective. And, and uh, I would like you to come back next week if you're willing. I, I am willing indeed. You consider it? All right. I will consider it. Great. Um, so stay tuned next week for more uh, of The Incomparable and The Empire Strikes Back. Until then, I'm Jason Snell. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>